we asked you what comes to mind when you think of Disney. The company is celebrating its 100th birthday this year. When I was growing up, Disney was a large part of my childhood. I watched the Mickey Mouse Club and the Wonderful World of Disney on television. And I miss the, the kind of programs that we had back then. I'm 71, and my first movie I ever went to was Darby O'Gill and the Little People. My first date was going to see 101 Dalmatians down at the Fabulous Fox. I don't know whether Disney's morphed into the evil empire now from Uncle Walt. It's a complicated question, and thanks for exploring it. And, and thanks for bringing this up that put a smile on my face for the rest of the day. Well, I just wanted to speak up on behalf of... The 101 Dalmatians animated uh, film from the 60s, it hit me at just the right age. These two beautiful dogs, Dalmatians, they're noble, they're affectionate, they're courageous. The movie has life and death in it, heroism, mystery. It was very inspiring to me as, as a kid, and I've always loved it since. Well, Disney is the largest entertainment company in the world, valued at $180 billion, and it had four of the ten highest-grossing films of 2022. But the company's journey has not always been smooth. There have been accusations of poor employee pay. There's been criticism of the lack of diversity in the company's content and some major reshuffling of leadership lately. After the break, we dig into the past, present, and future of Disney and hear more about what it means to you. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. Let's get into our discussion of Disney. Joining us is Brooks Barnes, a media and entertainment reporter for The New York Times. Brooks has been covering Disney for almost 20 years. Also with us is Sarah Nielsen. She teaches film and television at the University of Vermont with a focus on race, class, and gender in the media. And I will add, she's also working on a book about the cultural history of Disney princesses. Brooks, let me start with you, and there are all the characters that we associate with Disney. We were hearing a lot about 101 Dalmatians, a lot of classic films. There were the theme parks, of course, but as I said, this is a giant conglomerate. So when we say Disney, what does that encompass uh, in the year 2023? Disney is in places that you probably never uh, thought. It's I noticed it was in my refrigerator this morning <laughs> on a side of yogurt. <laughs> Don't have children. Um, you know... People think of Disney animation in the theme parks, obviously, but it's also uh, Cruise Line, it's Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, um, Avatar, uh, it, Disney Plus, uh, streaming, uh, Searchlight Movie Studio, uh, the Oscar-oriented, uh, also National Geographic, FX, the cable network that you don't is not very uh, you know. Disney, you wouldn't think of as the Disney brand, and you can soon buy a home from Disney <laughs> and retire. Is that right? In a whole com- uh, yes, they have, they have a new division that uh, it's a retirement communities. What a play message that we got from Mary in Maryland. Our family drove on a cross country trip and visited Disneyland. When we got back, my father came in some inheritance money. And, and he said to my mom, what do you want to do with it? And my mom said, that Disneyland was really great. Let's buy Disney stock. And my parents, I don't think, had ever bought stock before. They bought that stock right before Disney announced the acquisition of the Florida property for Disney World. The stock went up. It split. It went up. Anyway, my father paid cash for a full-size Ford pickup truck just from the profits from that Disney stock. 
I'm a business reporter, so I love stories like these. Mary, thank you very much for that message. And Sarah, Disney is, the, as Brooks was describing, the largest entertainment firm in the world, has this immense value of $180 billion. What has made it so uniquely successful? Mary mentioning those theme parks in her message. Um, I think most people don't realize that Disney, Walt Disney, classic Disney was the first in many different fields. And just quickly to lay out just a sense of why Disney is still existing today, Disney had the one of the first sound films, Steamboat Willie, way back in 1928, first studio to use three-strip Technicolor, first feature-length animated film with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He was the first person to use stereophonic sound with Fantasia in 1940, first studio um, head to turn to television, so where most um, Hollywood studio heads after the Paramount decision that broke up the studio system in 1948, Walt Disney was the only one to see the vision of what television was possible, and he embraced television Back in 1950, he moved into nature documentaries, so he was producing some of the first of the really um, important blue-chip nature documentaries in the 1950s and 60s. He introduced miniseries, the theme parks that was uniquely, distinctively Walt Disney's vision in response to what he saw as sort of trashy culture at amusement parks at the time. He um, had the vision of Epcot, this idea of a planned community. Um, He was also involved in, in government production. The Disney Studios during World War II were the only studios that converted to full-time military production, so many of the anti-Nazi propaganda films were being produced by the Disney Mm -hmm. studio. He um, worked as part of USIA, um, so doing cultural diplomacy for the U.S. government. So I don't think people recognize the sort of scope and diversification of the studio early, early. This was under Walt Disney's mm, leadership. Incredibly long history there. Um, Brooks, you cover Hollywood for the time. So if, if Disney is, is like a small country, as it sounds like from what you've described and, and what we've heard uh, there in that in that last last answer, I, I, I wonder, when you look at the whole continent, when you look at Hollywood broadly, how does it compare to other studios, other media companies today? Um, Disney's by far the, the largest holder of IP, that magic uh, intellectual property word in Hollywood. Um, and that makes it uh, formidable, you know, uh, in terms of the characters that can exploit the franchises that already have fan- a fan base. The, the other thing is just its hold on, on the consumer, right? Like, there isn't anything that compares to it in Hollywood in terms of brand recognition, in terms of, you know, she, all of that, those firsts were, were are important and, and perfect. Um, you know, it's, it's for a lot of people, their first movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I went, my mom, when I was, you know, a little kid took me to see Jungle Book. Uh, someone mentioned the, the other classic movies in the, in the beginning. And so, that connection that Disney has created over decades, the theme parks are a big part of that, um, is, is not replicated anywhere in Hollywood. Let's hear from another listener. This is Sam, uh, who called in. My parents used to go down every year to visit my grandmother in Fort Lauderdale, and we would always take a day or so out to go stop at Disney World. I probably went every few years, starting when I was about three years old. And when I was in my teens, I swore it off. And then I ended up back there with a choir uh, in a performance when I was 17 years old at the time of my life and have continued to go back now every few years. Uh, I brought my wife there uh, before she was my wife. We got engaged. We've been married. 
Uh, we don't have children, and we use Disney World sort of, I think, like most people use Las Vegas as a place to go, to have magic, to unwind, and to celebrate. Sarah Nielsen, comment on this, if, if you would. I, I, I am shocked. Every time I encounter someone roughly my age, perhaps a bit older, who still delights in Disney, delights in this kind of pantheon of old films that, that we've been talking about and, and the place and its associations um, as well, how, how has this company managed to cultivate and develop these relationships with Disney fans that extend well beyond, well beyond childhood? I think one of the the big things to think about is how Disney's films themselves are so full of a sort of optimism that's very sort of American-based in this uh, sense of magic, of the enchantment, of fantasy space. And those uh, fantasy spaces are created in the films, and then very smartly Disney understood that to create these theme parks based around those films, so you not only watch you know, Mickey Mouse, you go to Mickey Mouse land. So you participate in the actual experience in a 3D experiential way. And to think about this was very early on. Disneyland opened in 1955. He already, Disney had this idea that I can integrate my products cross. So I will create a film, I will merchandise that film, and then I will create a space where you can become a participant within that world in a 3D space. So this crossed product linking that he did creates this linkage for a child. Wow, I watched the film. Mm -hmm. I saw the film on TV. Also, the Disneyland TV show we should talk about, too. The original Disney show was literally called the Disneyland show. It was about constructing the Disneyland park. So children across the country, baby boomers, were watching that and going, oh, my God, I want to go to Disneyland. And then you go to Disneyland, and you're like, oh, my God, there's Snow White. I just watched Snow White. Or, oh, my God, there's Cinderella. Let me go get her signature. So you have this way in which you go from the flat... Um, experience of watching a show on TV or screen to all of a sudden immersing yourself within the park space. And that's really, I think, the key pleasure for a media consumer is to become part of that world yourself. No longer are you a spectator, you're now a participant within this fantasy land. My colleague at NPR, Michelle Martin, interviewed the granddaughter of Disney co-founder Roy Disney in September about the poor treatment of employees at the company. Just play a bit of, of some of what she had to say. It became clear to me when I talked to these folks that Disney didn't want people to stay for a long time at the company. And of all the things, that was one of the ones that really, really bothered me the most because it used to be a lifetime job. It used to be a place where they wanted you there because the history made you a better employee. But the way employers look at employees now, the longer they have someone there, the more comfortable they become organizing, the more powerful they are at organizing others. In a 2019 Washington Post op-ed, Abigail Disney calling out the fact that uh, CEO Bob Iger on his first term as CEO of that company made $65 million in 2018, over 1,400 times more than the median pay for Disney employees. Brooks Barnes, there's this, there's this veneer of happiness that's by design, uh, and yet beneath it there have been troubles, accusations of, of unfair pay and unfair treatment from, from Disney employees. Talk a bit about that and how the, the company has navigated these troubles, these, these waters. I mean, the gap is is gargantuan, right? If you look between CEO, the CEO and uh, the theme parks, for example, and even sort of this week, it's flaring up at Disney World, where I think uh, 35,000 uh, employees there, unionized employees, are voting on a new contract offer. Uh, the man, the union leaders have have you know recommended voting no uh, because they say that that it's just not uh, you know a living wage anymore. And 
that's a, that's a recurring problem, especially at, at the theme parks. Um, Disneyland in California recently signed a new contract with its big unions um, that is pretty substantial. So, so that's a you know. Uh, uh, beneath the wishing on stars and living happily ever after, right? There are a lot of people uh, who are like, uh, that's not a reality. <laughs> and how about during the pandemic, Brooks? Um, were they under, I imagine, incredible pressure with, with their theme parks then? Yeah, I mean, Disney's was basically closed. The theme parks were closed. You couldn't make TV shows. Um, and uh, live sports came back, you know, relatively soon. But uh, the the theme parks. I mean, to your point about you know adults uh, with without children or coming to enjoy the parks. I went. I covered the reopening of Disney World, which happened pretty early in the pandemic, rather controversially. Employees in that case, a lot of them were were concerned about their own safety. And you know, I'm standing on Main Street, and people are you know in their 40s, 50s are are coming in and breaking into tears and, you know, sort of falling to their knees at the side of the castle. You know, it, it, it's very easy to be cynical about that. And it, it you know, makes my eyes pop. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, that reaction is real to them for sure. Right. And so I try not to try not to judge it. You know, we reached out to Disney for this conversation. They responded, but were uh, unable to make anyone available in time for, for this show. Pivoting a bit here, um, if you stream some of the older films we've been talking about on Disney Plus today, you'll see this disclaimer, this warning about racist stereotypes in films like Dumbo and, and Peter Pan. And Disney says those stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Um, we got a message from one of you about this, Disney's problematic past. Here's Leslie in Omaha. I think Walt Disney was a racist and a bigot. There's evidence in there in Dumbo, certainly Song of the South, Fantasia, and of course Steamboat Willie. I don't think he treated minorities well. I don't think that he lived up to everything that Disneyland projects and would like us to think it is. Sarah Nielsen, let me have you respond to that. Uh, what do we know about Walt Disney's attitude toward race? And talk a bit about how the, how the company has reckoned with that in recent years. So I think it's important to keep in mind that Disney died 57 years ago, and he was born 122 years ago. And I think it's very easy for us today to use our value system to judge films that were produced, you know, we're talking 70 years ago. So often when I am asked this question, I think it's it's much simpler to say Walt Disney was a racist than it is to say that America was racist. Mm. And so I often encourage people to think about Dumbo, let's say the probably the most common target in terms of charge of racism is Dumbo. Dumbo was released in 1941. We're talking decades before the Civil Rights Act. We're talking a period where Jim Crow laws were throughout the South. And one way I, I way to think about this is what was Hollywood itself doing at that period in terms of racial representations? So was Disney an outlier in terms of his racism, or was he functioning in a way that the institution of Hollywood was functioning in terms of racial representations? And if you think about it that way, and you understand like, Gone with the Wind comes out in 1939. It's a plantation film. It celebrates the South and slavery as a very positive thing. It was award-winning. It's still the highest-grossing film ever produced, adjusted for inflation. <laughs> Same time period where Dumbo comes out. And then if you look at the actual crows in Dumbo and say, okay, what is it about the crows that are racist? 
often people um, say the vernacular that's used by the crows, but it's important to keep in mind that those crows were performed by African-American performers. And so the actually they called in a very well-known um, group of brothers, Freddie and Eugene Jackson, to dance the sequences that were used to model the crows. Mm. And the actual voices were done by a very well-known um, orchestrator and choral director, Hale Johnson. And those performers, then you say, well, what was Hollywood doing? Mm -hmm. Was anyone hiring these performers? Was Walt Disney unique in hiring those performers? And then what is the performances that these African-American performers were required to do to function within what was inherently a white supremacist system. It was not a system that was open to African-American performers. Sarah, I'd love to return to, to that subject uh, and, and ask you about conversations that you had with the Disney family years after those early films. What did they say to you about how they are thinking through this or how they, they view those films that were created in the 20s and 30s? Um, so just in terms of a quick context, I was in the PBS documentary about Disney, and I was invited to speak at the family museum, and I had a conversation with several of the grandchildren. And I think the company is struggling because of really sort of the historical disconnect. So how do you respond to charges of racism, anti-Semitism that occurred 60, 70 years ago in a company that's today? And I think one thing the company has done very well is its attempts to address these issues in in terms of including multiculturalism, you know, issues of racism by posting its disclaimers on its film. So it is a company that has changed and continues to change in response mm. to pressures and attacks and valid criticisms of racism or, um, you know, insensitivity in terms of representations. Mm. We're talking about Disney's legacy as the company turns 100. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Teresa in Iowa. I greatly embrace Disney in my youth, in song, in dance. Now that our home uses Disney Plus, we absolutely love it. Our young children are getting to experience that same wonder and enthrallment that my husband and I experience. You are so molded by things you see and things you hear. And we really like the message of diversity, inclusion, and joy that Disney brings to our home. Brooks, I, I want to talk about your beat and how busy it's been in, in, re, in recent months here. So you had Bob Chapek removed as CEO of the company. Bob Iger, who was CEO, has been brought back in um, to run the company once again and help with plans to find uh, a new successor, given that Bob Chapek did, didn't work out. What led to all of this? What's led to all of the kind of managerial tumult that we've seen over these last few months? It's been a, a lot, right? <laughs> I, You've been busy, I, I, suffice one, to say. Just, yes. just one Quick thing about the the racism uh, to topic. You know, I totally agree. You know, there's a there's a conversation and a point of view about. You know, Walt Walt was a product of his time. The the other point of view, and and you know, certainly valid to talk about is, you know, other companies in Hollywood did not project themselves as a moral authority. Mm -hmm. And have have a brand of entertainment that was about imagining what a perfect world might be, not what what you saw in, in real life. And so so that's difficult to um, square for a lot of people when they look at some of the pro back stuff. And also, you know, Disney. Yes, it was wrong now. It was, it was wrong then. They they only did that because they had to. <laughs> you know, for forever, Disney has been about avoiding p political and cultural pitfalls zealously. So, I mean, which leads us to, yes. to some of the tumult that we've seen. 
Absolutely. So the the big challenge at Disney is coming up with someone who who can lead uh, a company that is now sort of you know the the tentacles to use sort of an evil word <laughs> into all corners of American culture, um, and has that sort of ability to um, inspire the the storytelling and sort of see where where it might be headed. One of Disney's biggest challenges is relevancy, right? Their their children and young people are core audience. And so how do you think about a theme park ride that is, you know, going to be exciting to 10-year-olds uh, in 10 years? Um, and so that's one part. And then also you've just got all of these uh, problems at Disney with, um, and, and, and the rest of the the uh, entertainment industry, but as Disney being the largest, it says some of the biggest problems, streaming, figuring out how do they make money um, from streaming while their cable businesses, which have been the long-time cash cows, uh, slowly, slowly die. Got a pair of emails I, I want to read. The first is from Jay. He writes, when our parents took us to Disney World, we didn't know that that weekend uh, was one of the first gay days. My parents at the time were horrified to the point when they saw they were paranoid at anyone wearing anything red, the official gay day's color. We were snickering the whole time uh, at their paranoia, and they later realized how absurd they were being. It, turn, it, being uh, it turned out to be an important step toward the acceptance of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And Jasper emailing, I'm not a big Disney fan, but to give credit where it's due, I'm happy for the body positivity and LGBTQ plus representation in recent years. I did not have that when I was younger, and while I believe there needs to be some improvements, it's a starting point. Brooks, I'd love for you to respond to, to that pair of emails, um, the point therein, um, how, how welcoming early on um, th- this company was. Yeah, Disney does deserve credit in that way. They were the first, one of the first, if not the first, to offer same-sex uh, benefits. Uh, gay days is not a a uh, Disney sanctioned, sanctioned, sanctioned event, yeah. uh, right? Organizers just you know say you know this is the day, let's all go. And at at first, Disney itself was horrified. It, it handed out uh, if anyone came wearing a red shirt, which was uh, the the you know how the affiliation. Uh, would you know the, the organizers were like you know if you're if you're gay or or uh, supporting us come to Disneyland in a red shirt Disney World in a red shirt and mm-hmm. so if families came not knowing in red shirts Disney would hand out T-shirts to them so they didn't have to they didn't have the mere horror of maybe you know um, so uh, they they ultimately had uh, nothing they could do you know they put out signs saying. Um, you know, there's a private, there's a event happening today, but uh, since then it's grown. Uh, I went to the the gay days in Orlando at Disney World this this last year, given all of the the tumult, uh, political tumult, and it was something to behold. <laughs> Let me use that as a segue. Uh, George emailing us, uh, can your guests talk about the current political environment in Florida and the war that Governor DeSantis and the legislature has declared against Disney? Will it cause Disney to lose money and fans? Uh, and would Disney ultimately decide to leave the state? Brooks, I'll, I'll have you respond to George. Uh, they would never leave the state. It's it's way, way, way too, uh, you know, big, uh, Disney World. Um, it's one of the signature challenges for Disney is trying to steer through um, this hyper partisan moment in in 
you know, our country and world where both sides of the political divide uh, have been pounding on Disney uh, because it's, you know, its status as, as such an important brand and symbolizes America itself for many people, um, you know, to take sort of its side, you know, uh, be more progressive, have, uh, you know, in your storytelling and even, in, you know, in your loudspeaker announcements at the theme parks, remove ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, you know, and then the other side saying, this is, you know, we want you to be traditional and conservative and, uh, you know, some other words that, that uh, you know, re- reflect our point of view. In the time we have left here, I'd, I'd love to kind of linger on and talk about um, some of the films themselves, of what made Disney a household name. Now don't tell me who you are. Let me guess. I know. You're a duck. <laughs> why, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's true. And you're... You're bashful. Oh, gosh. <laughs> he doesn't walk very good, does he? Thumper? Yes, Mama. What did your father tell you this morning? If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Come on, Bambi. Get up. Try again. I killed Mufasa. Family, we are all thankful for Antonio's wonderful new gift. I told them to warm up your seat. Thank you, Toñito. I'm sure today we'll find a way to put your blessings to good use. I was scratching the names down as we went along there. So it was Encanto, The Lion King, Bambi, uh, and Snow White. Sarah, I mentioned you're writing this book on Disney princesses, and maybe we can go there first. These are, are some of the most iconic characters this company has has created. What explains their popular appeal, their longevity? And, and talk a bit, if you would, just about how Disney's thinking about them as protagonists has changed uh, in these last couple of decades. So first thing I would probably mention is the artistry of the film. So Disney was the first person to really recognize that animation could be an art form rather than a popular cartoon that was typical in the newspapers of the period. So he brought in the best artists in the world to work at the studio, train them, had them go to art school. And so you had artists that were really working at a level that was unprecedented for such a common form as the cartoon. So even the artistry today, and that's why these films still survive to this day, is because of the actual visual artistry. The second thing is that Disney also thought of animation as a way to tell stories, and he was primarily a storyteller. And so bringing in classical Grimm's fairy tales, he loved fairy tales, and putting them into very effective storytelling form is immediately apparent, too. And the other thing he was really great about was creating characters. And he's known, Disney is known for personality animation, so making his characters come to life. And so all of his characters, and particularly if you want to focus on the issue of the princesses, mm-hmm. the princesses are fleshed out in some form. Uh, and, and to the second part of my, my question, is how, how they've, they've changed or how Disney has seen the role of the princess change uh, in these recent films. 
So you have the evolution from classic Disney, which is the Cinderella's and the Sleeping Beauties into the Michael Eisner period, which we haven't really talked about at all. And the Disney Renaissance, Mm -hmm. where you have the um, Ariel's um, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and the rise of a more multicultural princess. So as Disney was responding to its earlier criticism of the more passive princesses of the classical period. Brooks, I'll ask you to you pick up there, and she's invoking Michael Eisner and that 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 Renaissance. I guess we can kind of draw a line from that to to what we see today. And we talked about streaming at the top of the show, and now we have this immense archive uh, available. Uh, I've got young kids, and they can watch any of these movies. And um, I, I wonder how Disney views that. I mean, this is a huge treasure trove of 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 content, <laughs> to, to use that c word, um, that this company is able to to exploit and in, in interest a whole new audience. And in. how effectively have they been able to do that? How successful has the streaming operation at Disney been in? creating or cultivating this this renaissance of interest in, in these old films. Like no one does it better than <laughs> Disney in terms of keeping that that flame burning. You know, it's hard it's hard not to smile when you, you hear some of those clips that you just played. Um, and part of the reason that their streaming service Disney Plus was such a success right out of the gate certainly was that that library. And you know, it always fascinates me when I talk to other companies in Hollywood, like, you know, today They'll say, well, we're trying to get our, you know, it's really great because our merchandising unit is talking to our film department and they're talking. And, and like, Disney's been doing that, to Sarah's point, since the 50s. Oh. <laughs> and it's just seamless, right? And um, that's part of how that, that, you know, we talk about the the Disney machine or marketing machine. And uh, that's, that's a part of why their streaming service was such a hit out of the gate. And The Simpsons, I have to say, uh, is sort of an uncredited um, uh, hero of, of those early subscriber numbers. Now the challenge is, uh, you know, to grow even more. How do they do that? Uh, do they expand into other programming, less Disney thematic programming, like FX shows, uh, Hulu shows? Do they bring that into Disney Plus? Uh, that's a that's a sort of question for whomever is going to lead that company uh, to figure out. Brooks, let's linger on sort of the, the the immediate cultural impact of this this company right now, and we go back to what Walt Disney once wondered: you know, why do we have to grow up? How much does that sentiment sort of reflect the culture and the spirit of the company today? We've talked about its immense value being valued at more than $180 billion. There is still this association with the company that that Walt Disney built way back when. Um, how much of his focus? His key goals, his aspirations for the company are reflected in this, again, multinational monolith that, that we have today. Um, it's interesting. It, it, it kind of evolves, right? <laughs> they, love, they love quoting uh, Walt. It was all started by a mouse. I may, I may get that slightly wrong. <laughs> uh, but, but um, you know, the, the vision has, has changed a bit. Um, it's certainly now more um, multicultural. Uh, you know, there's a lot more um, LGBTQ representation um, in terms of, of sort of, if you look at, if you're thinking of just the power to influence uh, of culture, Disney is, is right up there. And so they do see themselves as um, certainly under Bob Iger, less so under Bob Chapek, just uh, they see themselves as, playing a role in shaping culture. It's the shaping what people uh, think about each other. 
Syrup, here we are marking the 100th anniversary. Where is this company in, in 50 years or 100 years? Is that well telegraphed? Do you have a sense or, or an idea of what this company is going to look like uh, many decades from now? I mean, if you look at the highest grossing Disney films right now, they are Star Wars and the Marvel series. So I think the company has diversified in a way that makes continuing branding around Walt Disney complicated. So I do think that that sort of traditional origin tale of Walt Disney as creating this company will persist. I do, though, as it moves into other properties and other identities, they're going to continue to have to negotiate sort of historical Disney with new Disney. Um, so it's it's not going to be easy. And I think as it goes through sort of the, they will continually be talking about kind of the racialized anti-Semitic attacks on Disney, which continue to this day and are, are very difficult to negotiate because of the hundred years we're talking about of the founding of this company. Such a pleasure to talk to both of you. Sarah Nielsen teaches film and television, race, class, and gender in the media and popular culture at the University of Vermont. She's also working on a book, A Cultural History of Disney Princesses. Brooks Barnes covers Disney for the New York Times. He's a media and entertainment reporter there. Thanks to both of you for the time. Really appreciate it. Today's producer was Haley Blassengame. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.